0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Just to let you know about our exhibitions, On View Now is the exhibition Chinese-American Exclusion Inclusion, which explores the centuries-long history of trade and immigration from China and the U.S., as well as Holiday Express, Toys and Trains from the Journey Collection, and Annie Leibovitz, Pilgrimage. So if you haven't seen them, please come back. And of course, you must have passed the trains on your way in. They they are wonderful. Um, We'll end in mid-February, so tell your friends. And I always like to ask how many members are with us in the audience. And we have Mr. Schwartz is here. Oh, how wonderful. He's one of our great members. Um, I did see, I think, two people who are not members. (laughs) So I just want to invite you to become a member, join the family. Your membership helps support all our programs. um, And you can sign up with our colleagues tonight when you leave the auditorium. So tonight's program... Presidential leaders, Theodore Roosevelt is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. Let's give Mr. Schwartz a big hand. Thank you, Mr. Schwartz. Thank you. Thank you. I also want to Thank our trustee, one of our trustees who's with us tonight, Rick Reese, um, for all his great work and support, and all our Chairman's Council members with us. Let's give our trustees and our Chairman's Council members a hand as well. Thank you. So, the program tonight will last an hour and include an answer and session, and a question and answer session, and we invite audience members. To approach the two standing mics in the aisles and we do that so that everyone in the auditorium can hear the question um, the speaker can hear and we do make podcasts we audio um, record these talks and post them on our website for the greater world to hear so you understand we just want everyone to hear so following the program. Please join us for a book signing with tonight's speaker, whose books will be available in our museum store. We are thrilled tonight to welcome back Douglas Brinkley to the New York Historical Society. He is Professor of History at Rice University and Presidential Historian for CBS News. His definitive biography of CBS News anchorman, Cronkite, was deemed one of the best books of 2012 by the Washington Post, and no less than eight of Professor Brinkley's books have been selected as New York Times Notable Books of the Year. Among his other books include The Wilderness Warrior, Theodore Roosevelt, and The Crusade for America, and The Quiet World, Saving Alaska's Wilderness Kingdom. In addition to being a best-selling author, he serves as a contributing editor for Vanity Fair, Audubon, and American Heritage, and is a frequent contributor to the New York Times, Foreign Affairs, The New Yorker, and The Atlantic Monthly. And we always ask before we begin if you have a cell phone and electronic device to please turn it off for the duration of the program. And now please join me in welcoming Douglas Brinkley. Thank you. <laughs>
1: Well, good evening. It's an honor to be here at New York Historical Society and try to shed some light on one of my heroes, Theodore Roosevelt, and why he's considered a great leader. Um, when the um, Schwartz, um, the Schwartzes wanted to make this uh, series, you know, go, they really want us to focus on leadership qualities, and I'm telling you, there's no president quite like T.R to get to talk about that. I wanted to begin thinking about Roosevelt um, being New York City's president, being born here in 1858. Because in his household, um, growing up in New York, he had a father who was a Dutch Knickerbocker here from New York and a mother, um, the Bullock family. She came from Georgia. I told you 1858. You all know something about history. The Civil War is upon us, and in the Roosevelt family, you had a a, a feud. Uh, a mother who loved Robert E. Lee and a father who loved Grant. Young TR decided to love the West instead. And as I'll talk about some of his formative years as a ca- in, the, in the Dakota Territory, it'll become clear what the West meant in building his leadership skills. But if I focus for a minute on eighteen. 58. one year after he was born, 1859, was Darwin's On the Origins of Species, and that book is a revolution, and it really hit the Roosevelt family very hard. Um, Theodore Roosevelt's father was the, one of the founders of the Institute Next Door, the American Museum of Natural History, but he, he had an uncle, Robert Barnwell Roosevelt, who was called the Audubon of the Civil War era and went on to write books like the um, Fishing on Lake Superior and a book on the Waterfowl of Florida. And Uncle Rob, his father's brother, was an ardent Darwinian, in fact, wrote seminal things about eels and frogs, ran for Congress Uncle Robert Roosevelt from New York to save the shad, um, because the shad were being out, um, uh, outfished, um, fished out of the Hudson River and the East River. And so, the, this Darwinian infusion becomes very important because it's one of the reasons young Theodore Roosevelt wants to be a naturalist. He ends up going to Harvard, class of 1876, um, uh, graduates really as a, wanting to be a biologist or a wildlife biologist. But the Darwinism is a strand in TR's leadership, and it, it connects, I think, with learning about Darwin when he's young. An exact quote of Theodore Roosevelt was, "I sat at the at the the um, feet of Darwin and Huxley growing up, and that revolution of what it meant by the evolution of man." There's even one of the first leavings we have of TR is, uh, that he wrote was showing like I'm I. I'm evolving from um, an ape, and my brother's evolving from a stork, and my you know, cousins from a, uh, a sparrow or whatever. It just shows you that breakdown, and he even writes Darwin's theory of evolution in his boyhood hand on top, TR. So you know, he's thinking about this a lot, and it coincides with him being sick, with him having asthma. I've always identified I had asthma as a boy, so Theodore Roosevelt's struggles with asthma has always been very meaningful to me. And in New York, he could not breathe here in the city. The pollution was so thick. He was sick all the time. And he started finding some wellness the further up the river he got. Uh, When he got to the Catskills, and more specifically to the Adirondacks, uh, he felt then that nature had a curative quality, um, to him, and it got him more and more interested in being a, a floral and faunal naturalist. Add to that mix, his early penchant for hunting, um, which develops into a lifelong obsession. And boy, what's colder on Darwin terms than not just species survival, but when you get shot and you're dead, and you'd go to the carcass all that life and then you're gone. And from that, hunting experiences, and, and he did a lot of great taxidermy. His lat Theodore Roosevelt, when he was a boy, did, um, his teacher was John James Audubon's taxidermy uh, specialist. And T.R. learned how to do small animals with taxidermy and all. And um, th- these combinations then of, of hunting and Darwin in trying to conquer illness in those days with asthma, one of the they would prescribe smoking cigarettes, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, you know, they and so you know he's and then his father at a famous moment when he goes up to Maine, he gets beat up by some boys, not badly, but roughed up and mocked as being an effete urban kid. And his uh, his father said, "Well, we're, you're going to develop into a into man, a manly person." And you have young T.R. having weights. His father gets him weights and he starts weightlifting. By the time you go to Harvard, you see photos of Theodore Roosevelt while he's in Cambridge with no shirt on, looking all buff, You know, because he's been, he's been making himself strong. He's willing it, but, not, but willing it through physical exertion um, as well as intellectual ex- exertion. And those combos are coming to him. Um, you know, we, the, those strains are kind of coming together by the time he's at Harvard. Add to this, I, I, I consider myself a presidential historian. I would tell you, I think Theodore Roosevelt had the best father. He was an incredibly honest man, pious, um, big New York City uh, socialite, philanthropist, uh, religious. And TR, his greatest quality is honesty. Honesty. You talk about what makes him a great leader. He always told the truth. He believed in a code of valor and honor and um, in, in believed that he had to do, believe in action and being a doer. When he goes to Harvard, his first book, it's really a pamphlet he publishes, is called The Summer Birds of the Adirondacks. He then goes and wants to climb to the, the tallest mountain in Maine because Thoreau had climbed the mountain. And is reading about Thoreau's wanderings there, and he wants to hunt a moose, but he's bragging that I'm as tough now. I'm. He was with ardent outdoors people, and he wanted to be as tough as those men, and yet, and and he also can operate in in um, non masculine, uh, more uh, social society kind of cultures too. And you see them both forming his character, and. He also loved early on the the Navy. I'm, I'm mentioning some about conservation and hunting and naturalists, but the Navy was his great love. And he writes in 1882 that uh, Naval War of the 1812. Amazing stories he's writing about in those two books. It, it was taught at the Naval Academy forever and the Naval War College. It's still the classic. And he's writing this as a young man, this big two-volume thing on um, the War of 1812. And if you really read that, you'll see how much he loves American, um, the way America won up the British, the way Oliver Hazard Perry, um, you know, in in Erie, Pennsylvania, was able to build a fleet and take over the Ohio Islands against the British, and a kind of feeling of American exceptionalism is exuding him as a as a young man. He defines himself not just as a Darwinian but also as a Mahanian named after Alfred Thayer Mahan who believed that great power countries in the world, real politique or countries that mattered, Japan and Britain in particular, knew how to take care of of their shorelines, their homeland security in today's parlance. That you meaning in Roosevelt gets from reading Mahan's influence of sea power that we've got to have a navy on both coasts. Hence, you get to the Panama Canal when he's president and, and, and his focusing on building that shortcut that we can protect ourselves. You don't have to have the Navy go all the way down the, in um, South America and up that we have that shortcut. And incidentally, now as I speak to you, I mean, the Panama Canal is being doubled in size and has continued to be very important to America's Navy, but also American shipping. Um, but once he gets, beyond being the scholar of the Navy and hunting and all, of course he runs here in New York and becomes um, a legislator in Albany. And he has that harrowing moment. He's a reformer. He wants to go after, because of his honesty, he wants to go after corruption all his whole life. Uh, he's a prosecutor. His belief in leadership is being prosec- a prosecutor. The greatest thing to know about Theodore Roosevelt is he woke up every day wanting to get a bad guy. Um, it's why he became a New York police commissioner. It's why when he was in Dakota territory, he became a, a, a sheriff. Um, he, ne- he was not a defense attorney type. <laughs> um, and in the, the, But he's in Albany trying to get, become a reformer, going after corruption, and he famously, and I'm sure most of you know the story, comes, gets called in by his brother because his mother is very sick with Bright's disease. Her kidneys are failing. And his wife, Alice, is in labor with his child, who becomes Aleth Longworth Roosevelt, great Washington, D.C. wit um, and philanthropist, and and a very special daughter he had. But that same day in February, when he was just a young politician here in New York, um, on Valentine's Day, his mother dies on one floor and his wife dies on another in the same building. And one of the more moving documents I've seen is when he he puts an X into his diary and says the life has gone out of my life forever. He had bout of huge amounts of depression. Depression was part of the Roosevelt family. His brother it was an alcoholic with a deal. He dealt with his um, his depression by drinking and and. Some forms of opiates. Tr was almost a a teetotaler. Um, he barely would touch any alcohol in his life. In fact, he sued once when somebody said he he drank because he thought it was libel. But he drank about a gallon of coffee a day, so he's very caffeinated. But what, uh, but what happened was when he put that X in and left his baby daughter here in New York, um, his sister said to Theodore go out west. He always felt this western vector, a tug. The the most further west he's gone, and it is the real west, he went with his brother grouse hunting in the most western counties um, of Iowa. And he'd also been in the Red River Valley there on the border of North Dakota and Minnesota, but he didn't really get to see that wild west. And why is he so inflamed with the west? Well, if I said the Civil War to you was in the 1860s, by the 1870s, the boys' magazines and science magazines were showing photographs of the Hayden Expedition of 1871 that had gone to Yellowstone. And all these photographs of, you know, of of Crater Lake, you know, in Oregon, or the Red Rock, um, Slip Rock Canyons of Utah, they're starting to be photographed and seen. And you also had a geological survey charting and mapping the West because there are were, there were gold in them, there are hills. Famously in the Dakota, South Dakota, with the whole Custer period, uh, Battle a Little Bighorn, you know, people coming to the Black Hills for gold. Um, TR had an insight that everybody had did topography and geographical surveys of the West, but there was no biological survey. T.R.'s whole life, he wanted to know what grasses grow in every county, what kind of insects, what sort of fish, what type of, of bear. And, uh, and he got in very big Darwinian debates over species. He was what they called a lumper. For example, he thought there were maybe five species of bear. And a, um, a man named Dr. Seahart Miriam, a great mammalologist, said there are about 12 types of bear by studying their snouts and claws differences. They had at the Cosmos Club in New York a famous debate of the lumper versus the splitters, and TR did not like too many species because he wanted the public to know them all. He thought if you have too many, nobody will know. It becomes a specialist thing, so you have to reduce, and it was a very interesting argument. Well, he slaughtered Miriam, T.R. Imagine what a great orator and all. He just killed Theodore Roosevelt at the Cosmos Club debate on, on this. Yet he lost the debate in the end because Miriam went out to the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State and lo and behold found the biggest elk known to man, this giant elk that lived up there, a new species in Miriam's mind. And he writes, dear Theodore, I found a new elk and would like to name it after you. But I know you don't like all these subspecies categories. He said, oh, in this case, you're right. That is a new one. (laughs) Hence, you have the Roosevelt elk today from it. But... um, When when we talk about Theodore Roosevelt's Western Vector and why when that tragedy happened on Valentine's Day, the Northern Pacific Railroad here in New York, you could take the train across the the plains, you actually get to Minnesota, and then you'd cut across what's North Dakota, Montana. So a a link to Puget Sound, to Duluth and the Great Lakes, and then to New York. He got off in Medora, North Dakota, and began what he called his years in the wilderness. Um there 's a biblical connotation of that years in the wilderness wandering the desert or something, but he really did kind of wander around the Dakota territory in Montana. Yes, he wrote articles about big um, hunting for grizzly and the bighorns of wyoming, and yes he he uh, wrote about killing a buffalo and um, eating its uh, hump and tongue and having the head as a um, as a, a trophy um, from killing that bison. He went on to create the American Bison Society to save them, and he went on to, when, as president, rip out fixtures in the White House that were of African species like lions and the like, and instead had bison put on them. Also, commissioned the Buffalo nickel you hear about. So he fell very in love with that 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 the the what used to be 60 million bison on the Great Plains, but these years in the Dakota, he's a cowboy rancher. He's got two brands. Uh, the Maltese Cross and the Elkhorn, and uh, he says, I never could have been president, I never could have been a leader without my time in North Dakota. Well, they milk that for everything it's worth in North Dakota today. You'll see it if you go up to Theodore Roosevelt National Park in the Badlands, where the whole town has been saved. But what he meant was, I was raised well here in New York. I had money, but when I went out to Dakota, I got to live with hard-scrabbled rough and ready people, what he considered the American archetype. And he liked what he saw, men of self-reliance, people that a blizzard or uh, would occur and everybody would pull together in the community. But he liked the type of men that our Western states were developing. Becomes, I don't want to say he mythologized the cowboy because he was much more sophisticated than that. He became an ethnographer for cowboy culture Theodore Roosevelt, as president, got um, John Lomax funding from France to do studies at University of Texas on cowboy culture because he thought they cowboys were our knights of King Arthur, that this was so that their ballads and songs and and doggerel and all had cultural importance to us in the United States. But that ability that he could he could hang in there with those men. They call him Four Eyes at first, but he could hang in there, and they all became impressed with his leadership because he never quit. There was no quitting tear. He would go on looking for that buffalo, go on day after day, rain. He just wouldn't stop. Yet he was not a good hunter. He he was a terrible shot. <laughs> he was almost you know he later got blind in one eye from a, getting hit in the eye in a boxing match. But he had awful eyesight, but that indomitable, no-quit spirit that he had more, melding there in North Dakota. He comes back. He'll later get, he later gets remarried to Edith, um, and they have a wonderful marriage. There are no affairs in Theodore Roosevelt's life. He was very, they're very, very loyal because an affair would be lying, and I'm honestly telling you, Theodore Roosevelt doesn't lie. That's his big thing in life to admire, Um, But he comes here as police commissioner and does all sorts of things in New York as a leader of of getting rid of crime. He gets telephones set up for the first time in police stations so people could coordinate. He modernizes it a lot. He would walk the beat to go see things, talk to hustlers or prostitutes, um, gamblers, swindlers, um, and, and actually bust into houses to arrest people. He's showing this fearlessness And the fearlessness comes because of that Darwinian side, the sense of hunting, the death he just had. And he overcomes his depression with what's called exuberance. It is a form of manic depression, exuberance. Now, I didn't quite understand this before I studied TR, but I talked to Dr. K. Jameson, who's at Johns Hopkins in psychiatry. And TR is her model for the form of manic depression called exuberance, now, um, which is instead of being drinking or getting... depressed, well, you take your depression and everything becomes positive. It's beyond the... It's like the power of positive thinking of Norman Vincent Peale on steroids. <laughs> and so when... If TR were here with you tonight, it's his whole thing would be, Bully, what a great... It's wonderful to be here. This is fantastic. You know, you look... Great on and on and on. If you look at him, he's doing it all the time. You would think it's just a political act. And it may have been, what it is is a coping. It's a way he coped with life. And he could not turn himself off. The problem with that kind of exuberance is he was a chronic insomniac and um, could never um, shut himself off. That, that gallon of coffee didn't help either. Uh, but he would do a lot of arduous hiking and things to, um, to kind of wear himself down mentally and physically because he couldn't turn himself off. So the exuberance allowed him to write 35 books. The exuberance allowed him to do 150,000 letters. The exuberance allowed him to be a police commissioner and cowboy and write on the War of 1812 and write three hunting books about the Dakota, one uh, illustrated by Frederick Remington, um, and one to be, he could be a great birder and be a great. He did all of that in a, in a, the most crowded life imaginable. He only lived to be sixty, because of that exuberance. But the problem with exuberance is heart attacks, heart disease, short life. Today, a doctor would uh, give you tell you to take Ambien every night and go to the Caribbean for rest. Uh, I, I'm, I'm that's seriously. What you need, you need to relax, and he couldn't. Um, but he, he, um, he brought those qualities more and more into the public sphere, and after being in, in the New York Police Commissioner, as you all know, he famously became an Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and then we have the Spanish-American War with William McKinley, and... This is right up TR's alley, this war. He's a great believer in the Monroe Doctrine. In, in, in and Ameri- This is America's hemisphere. He, he once very much bemoaned that Canada wasn't incorporated into the United States. It bothered him a, a, as an expansionist and as a Monroe Doctrine person. Um, uh, But in the Spanish-American War, as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, he felt he could not morally be for the war against Spain, yet being desk-bound. That how do you ask somebody to go fight for you while you're putting people may die? So he quits Assistant Secretary of the Navy post under William McKinley and um, goes first to San Antonio, and that's where the Rough Riders are born at he always symbolically picks things. No, one book T.R. never wrote that he wanted to write was The History of the Texas Republic, What Happened at the Alamo. But the Hotel Manger, which is still there in San Antonio, you can go and you can see where T.R. recruited his volunteers to get the Rough Riders on the dusty fairgrounds of San Antonio to go east to Tampa and then to go into um, to Cuba and in the Spanish-American War. Another aspect of TR is which comes in will all make sense is that what Edwin O. Wilson, our great great naturalist at Harvard, and um, talks about some people being biophilic, which means some people in the audience here have to have an animal by them, cats, dogs, plants, botany you can't live without things like that around you. Other people like I don't need dogs, I don't need cats, they're hassle. I don't have I don't they don't have that. And TR was, again, an exaggerated case of needing other animals around him. At any given time, he had you know, 20, 30 pets. Um, and, and even more, if you include ones of his children. I mean, in the White House, when he was president, he had a badger named Josiah, a baby badger he would feed. Um, and they were a colonial animal. He raised it when it was young. He picked it up in Kansas, TR. A girl gave it to him. And it would go attack somebody. If he didn't know you, the family, there are pictures of the Roosevelt children holding the badger, you know. And, but when um, the, somebody he didn't like, it would go and bite them. And they had to get it out of the White House, and it ended up living in Sagamore Hill. It's buried in the, the Sagamore Hill property, Josiah the badger. What's interesting about that badger and, you know, the emperor of Ethiopia gave him a hyena. And he had a horse Algonquin that would ride the White House elevator. And it used to be called the executive mansion. Theodore Roosevelt's the one that names it the White House. He had a dog named Skip that couldn't bark but could climb trees that would sit on his lap. He had parrots, snakes, turtles, pockets full of nuts to feed squirrels on the White House lawn. While he was president, he wrote a book about the birds of Washington, D.C., which was a definitive kind of ornithological checklist while he was president. The reason I mention it at this part of my lecture is during the Spanish-American War, beyond the famous Rough Riders, men from the territories of New Mexico and Arizona and in, in Oklahoma, and from uh, Ivy League friends, polo crowd, they all mixed together in this volunteer Rough Riders regiment, the name taken from Buffalo Bill. But he had three mascots, a cougar, um, a, a golden eagle, and a, and a dog, a little puppy. And they stayed with the Rough Riders through the Spanish-American War. And today, in the Oval Office, at Barack Obama's desk, there is a bust called the Bronco, a bust called the Bronco Busters that Remington did. That was given to TR at Mottuck here in New York, Long Island, after the Spanish-American War, when he was quarantined for yellow fever. And all the pets are with him. His three mascots win this award when he gets the famous statue from Remington. But if you get to the Spanish-American War, you see the real leadership of T.R. Um, It is, um, he, he, only time we know he ever cursed was when horses would get water in their their faces and he would start using swear words because he, you know, about the animal torture of the water coming on them and when they had to bring animals to shore there. But he called it his crowded hour because on July 1, 1898, he became the great hero of Kettle Hill. Or San Juan Hill, as it's more famously known, Bill Clinton posthumously gave him the Medal of Honor for what he did there and led. And the name Theodore Roosevelt became a household name, along with Admiral Dewey, out of the Spanish-American War. He became a, a military folk hero out of the Spanish-American War because he was indomitable, and all the men said he showed no fear, total courage, again, I'm not worried. If the bullets meant for me, I will die. That's the way it goes in life, uh, and and so that lack of fear get noticed by people. You know, it's a leadership quality. But if, if if the colonel's not afraid, you know, we're not afraid. Um, but he comes back. He runs as a hero uh, for the Republican Party as a reformer, becomes governor of New York, and again as governor becomes a reformist. He talks about. Trust-busting, going after monopolies, um, weeding out corruption, Um, all of this are seminal to him. So much so that a lot of the business class in New York weren't keen on Governor Roosevelt. They thought he was cowboy and kooky, and they were finding a way to get him out of Albany And they degraded him, in a sense, by saying, look, the only thing he'll do is the vice presidency, and nobody wants that job. But his ego's so big, he'll take it. And they got him. They thought they got him out of the way. (laughs) And lo and behold, as you know, in Buffalo, um, um, you know, after T.R. ran for vice president, McKinley wins, and T.R. is now vice president, in um, 1901, September 6th, Buffalo, McKinley dies and Theodore Roosevelt becomes president. McKinley murdered by an anarchist. And now when Mark Hanna, the head of the Republican Party, said that damn cowboy is president, what are we going to do? And TR, true to form, is his own man. He does things the way he wants to do it. He um, immediately makes conservation a huge part of his presidency, saves over 234 million acres of wild America using all sorts of mechanisms, um, mainly this what you hear about President Obama and executive orders. Now TR's view of executive orders was do him a lot because if Lincoln could liberate the slaves with an executive order, he could save the Grand Canyon with an executive order. And in fact, he did just that. He went all over the country and used a, the Antiquities Act of of 1906, which gave him executive power to for the word science to save places for science. So it could be a an, you know, 60 acres of, for paleontologists to study bones found in the West or a strange natural feature. But he goes with his Rough Riders to the Grand Canyon, stands on the lip of the canyon looks out over the abyss and says, do not touch it, God has made it, you will only mar leave the Grand Canyon alone. Well, Senate wants to mine it for zinc, asbestos, and copper, and TR uses this Antiquities Act and in, in, saves 600,000 acres of the Grand Canyon. When asked, this is not science, this is a land grab, uh, Roosevelt said, well, it's, show me a better an example of a ro- studying erosion at work for science. Um, And he went around and saved the redwood trees, Muir Woods out in California and on and on, Devil's Tower, um, using these executive power. He also created five national parks, taking them through Congress, which you have to do for that designation. But he created 51 federal bird reservations with executive order, giving birth what we call U.S. Fish and Wildlife today, 500 wildlife refuges. Because 100 years ago, every woman here tonight would have come wearing a hat with a dead bird or an ornamental feather on it. And, um, and they were a mafia in New York City that was a feather mafia that would go down to places and you'd gun down all the birds on their rookeries, pluck their exotic um, um, feathers, and then steal the eggs and you were starting to get extinctions of species, and as somebody was interested in Darwin and all the species this could not be, so he found out at a particular place called Pelican Island off of Vero Beach on the Atlantic, Indian River country. Um, he, he said, what will stop me from declaring this whole area a bird refuge, federal bird refuge? The lawyer said, well, he, I so declare it. And he then put four wardens down to Florida, and two of these um, USDA, United States Department of Agriculture wardens, were murdered, point blank, shot dead in the Feather Wars of Florida. Because you think, try telling Florida a, a, not that long after the Civil War that you're going to jail for shooting egrets and Heron. Uh, and it didn't go well, that kind of law. And TR just did these all over the place. Um, that's one part of his activist, that conservation leadership coming in, making people think about being good land stewards, fighting for reforestation. The big Navy part of his leadership as president comes bursting clear with the great white fleet he builds. He wants our Navy to be the best in the world as a Mahanian, and he wants us to be able to compete with Japan and with Britain or any great Navy in the world, and he does it. We build it. Places start humming with with ship manufacturing, and whether it's Groton or Newport News, or and we takes the Great White Fleet and moves them right into the Pacific and points right the and, and shows off to Asian countries. Look at what we've got. We are a great big navy, and um, so he's beloved in naval history. If you if you go to the Naval Academy, he's like the all time naval president heroes, Theodore Roosevelt. Um, on on the Monroe Doctrine, which I mentioned, Spanish-American War and all it's Theodore Roosevelt in 1905 that puts the Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, because the Monroe Doctrine, after all, was written by John Quincy Adams, and it was James Monroe, as president, telling Europeans, "Don't mess with our hemisphere, or you're going to get America in your face." You know what? The Europeans thought of that? They laughed. What's America gonna do to us? What do you mean your hemisphere? We had no big Navy to defend the hemisphere. So, but by nineteen oh four, with Roosevelt's Navy, we tell them the Monroe the Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine is we got them. the Monroe Doctrine's alive and we've got the Navy now. So it's a very big, a militaristic foreign policy approach. Yet Theodore Roosevelt wins the Nobel Peace Prize for mediating the Russo-Japanese War. He was very enamored with the Japanese culture and Japanese people, the food, uh, art, everything. But he brokered that, won a Nobel Peace Prize. And for somebody who talked a very militaristic game from 1901 to 1909 in his presidency, we never went to war. He's a peacetime president and a Nobel Peace Prize winner, but his name is associated with war because he fought in the Spanish-American War, but mainly because he talked about building up our armed forces. He liked Big Navy and Big Forest, um, and, and he stuck by the, that principle. And then the Panama Canal situation, which we don't have time to get into all, but basically it's created in New York, the country of Panama. You know, Waldorf Astoria, let's get a flag— to build this canal in what is today Panama. And people said to Theodore Roosevelt, you stole Panama from Colombia. And he said, I never stole it, I built it. I built the Panama Canal. And it was an engineering marvel. The great historian David McCullough and many others have written about it, and uh, uh, combating malaria and and, and how much um, er, uh, machinery was needed to accomplish that all in the name of, of America, and Monroe Doctrine, supremacy in the hemisphere, and our big Navy, and be able to protect our borders. Theodore Roosevelt was a great leader as president because he knew how to manipulate the press. And he, he would tell every reporter he saw, your article is the best thing I've ever read. Because he knew how the egos of writers and all they wanted to do, if uh, you can't hate a president just read your stuff and liked it. And also he was a genius with cartoonists. He would bring cartoonists with him everywhere. And in fact, one of the bits of bravery and leadership of T.R. was right when he came into the White House, he invited Booker T. Washington to dinner. And this was scandalous. The South was up in arms that an African-American not only was sitting in the White House dining with the president, but had his legs next to a white woman, Edith, the first lady's legs. And scathing, racist, bigotry, if you read the newspapers coming out of Mississippi. So you know what T.R. does? He decides he's going to go back to Vardman, the governor of Vardman of Mississippi, who was calling Roosevelt every ugly racial name in the book. And he went hunting in Vardman's backyard with Holt Collier, an African-American hunt guide. Today, there is a Holt Collier National Wildlife Refuge in the Mississippi Delta. And um, and this is the scene where a woman here in Brooklyn, Ruth um, uh, McComb, I believe it is, um, she um, ended up becoming very famous and made a lot of money. And I'll tell you why in a minute. They're down there in Mississippi, and the big thing was the South was lynching African Americans, and FDR wanted federal anti-lynching laws, and the South didn't want federal anti-lynching laws. So they, TR went there on the hunt, but also to promote and sell these, these, uh, the anti-lynching laws. So a cartoonist from the Washington Post, Clifford Berryman, drew a cartoon showing a black bear, but it looked awful like an African-American with a rope around its neck, and it showed Roosevelt saying, drawing the line in Mississippi because a real bear had been caught and roped by Holt Collier, and TR would not shoot it because that wasn't fair hunt conservation practice. So the cartoon had a double meaning. Drawing the line in Mississippi We're not slob hunters, we're not going to kill a trapped animal, and we are against lynching. The cartoon went, went, in today's parlance, viral, and Ruth here in Brooklyn wrote him a letter, Dear Mr. President, I would like to make a toy, a bear toy named after you, Teddy Bear. And um, he got back to her and said, Madam, you know, you may, but I don't think anybody cares. Well, it's the most ubiquitous toy in world history, still is, the Teddy Bear, Do you know how many politicians would die to have their symbol to be a child's toy? People going, all at train stations, kids with their teddy bears. I mean, politicians dream of such a a glory. Uh, In fact, if you think it's an easy act, William Howard Taft, his successor, wanting to bottle up some of the Roosevelt magic, ended up creating the Billy Possum toy, (laughs) a stuffed possum. None of you know what it looks like. <laughs> I'm not even sure you can get one on eBay, but maybe. But it, it, it went nowhere. Nobody wanted a BDI possum stuff toy, for starters, but he, just something about Roosevelt's magic on whatever he took on and his ability to communicate. Um, his bravery as a leader is just extraordinary in everything he does, even to the point he runs in 1904 and gets reelected by a landslide. And he could have run again in 1908. And he said, Nope, I'm not going to run because, eh, president's okay, but the real people I want to be associated with are explorers. Um, that he thought that, you know, and uh, never, it, it, that that was a higher thing to be than president in some ways. He later regretted this, we think, or we're or, or sure. But um, he, he quit right in the middle of it, 48 hours before he left, he signed an executive order saving Mount Olympus out in in, um, Washington State where all those Roosevelt elk were. Uh, It's still now Olympic National Park out there. And then he went to Africa for the Smithsonian and got lost in the wild in the Smithsonian. He loved to get lost in the wilderness. He found strength in that, living against the elements. I mentioned him in the Dakotas, um, in the wilderness years. But when McKinley was shot, they couldn't find Theodore Roosevelt. He was on top of Mount Marcy in New York, lost in the wild. And now as ex-president, nobody knows where Roosevelt is in the bush. Not only did he collect a lot of species for the Smithsonian as a hunter, collector, a man of science, but he also wrote a quite uh, marvelous two-volume inventory of the species of Africa. While he was there, his hand-chosen successor, William Howard Taft, a man he admired greatly, and I know you all are aware Doris Kearns Goodwin just wrote a best-selling book largely on this, but Taft gets um, the nod. T.R. wants him to be a successor. He's, a, he's the hand-picked guy for T.R., and Taft ends up firing Gifford Pinchot, the chief forester, and somebody who Roosevelt helped build 150 national forests with Pinchot, Republican for Pennsylvania, gets fired. Roosevelt's very angry about it, comes back and defies everybody and create, runs as the Republican nominee, feels he's being cheated at it by the Republican Party that's now being owned by corporations and banks and the like. And he breaks in 1912 and runs the most successful third party run in American history the Bull Moose Party. You see, named after an animal. you got to get back to the animal bit. The Progressive Party, 1912. And at that point, he wants to destroy Taft. If you're an enemy of TR, it's not enough to win. You have to destroy your opponent. And, uh, and he wake, went after Taft and destroyed the Repub- modern Republican Party at that time. He came in second, allowing Woodrow Wilson to come in first, TR second, and Taft a lonely third. But something more important happened in 1912 than him coming in second and letting Wilson be president. In his biography, when he went to Milwaukee and was walking like I just walked, an anarchist pulled out a gun and shot him T.R. is bleeding, stands there with blood coming out and says, it will take more than a bullet to kill a bull moose, and goes on lecturing. At that moment, what is that? Some people say it's nuts. Some people call it courage. Some people it's just, it's just true grit. Um, but what it becomes is he becomes a greater folk hero. Maybe like Paul Bunyan or Davy Crockett. He had founded the Boone and Crockett Club. Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone. He became a species of of folklore, not just of we just don't think of him as a president. Um, and. And, he, you know, he was nursed by Jane Adams, who would win a, whole, uh, a Nobel Prize herself as a social worker from Hull House in Chicago. The whole left of that time progresses, got behind TRN-12. And then once he loses that, he got a little depressed. Um, Wilson's in, and he goes for another brutal expedition, this time to South America, to the Amazon, to Brazil, traveling down a river over 600 miles, river of no return, and which and shows amazing fortitude, but also perhaps immaturity by even going. He said, it's my last chance to be a boy. Um, but he ended up trying to un- unlock a couple of boats and cut his leg, and that open wound caused him to get an infection, and he developed a malaria, a malaria of some kind, fever, almost died down there, was actually asked to be left to die. Not even, He's just a man in his 50s at this point. Comes back, and everybody here in New York said he was never the same. He was constantly having leg problems, constantly. His vitality had largely evaporated, and it evaporates more when he has a son killed in the First World War, Theodore Roosevelt was an early and ardent supporter of going in and taking it to the Hun, Kaiser's Germany. Um, he was angry at Woodrow Wilson um, for being lackadaisical of getting American intervention into what we call the Great War of today, or today we call World War I. In fact, TR wanted to lead a group of men, his Rough Riders II, if you like, and Wilson said, no way. He was very depressed that he couldn't go over there and fight and serve. His son had that same, Theodore Roosevelt Jr., you all, I think, know, had that same ardor and ended up dying in um, the Battle of um, Normandy in D-Day in World War II at 56 years old. The oldest man to die at D-Day was Theodore Roosevelt's son. Um, He dies 1919, um, buried here in New York at Oyster Bay, um, Sagamore Hill. If you haven't gone, go. It's one of the great homes and today, historians pick him fourth, the most important president after Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Franklin Roosevelt, and TR. That he's got uh, for a peacetime president, and not a president like Washington was our first. It's quite a coveted spot, but his life can, it brings out more and more books constantly. And he's one of the probably most favorite person I've ever got an opportunity to study and write about. Thank you. Now, I'm gonna be taking questions from the audience. If you'd like to ask a question, please approach one of the two standing mics in the aisle. Before asking your question, please tell us your name and out of respect for the other people waiting their turn, please ask just one question. And we have two staff members on hand if any of you need any assistance. So there's one there and one there. And we'll start with you, sir.
0: I'm Jim Pacinich, I'm a docent here. I thought one of the great political moves of Teddy Roosevelt was his relationship with J.P. Morgan. One of the first uh, companies that he uh, curtailed was the Northern Railroad that was owned by Morgan. I think it was in 02 or 03, and then in 08, he asked Morgan to help bail out the federal government, and he does that. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship and how that worked?
1: Well, two points. On railroads, you know, Roosevelt always wanted to kind of lower fees on the railroads, Um, but on Morgan, it was a very complicated an interesting relationship, but there's one moment when TR's Attorney General tells Morgan, and Morgan was very upset that my my administration knows no ticker tape, meaning Wall Street, because Morgan was saying if you do this, it's going to affect the finances of America. And Roosevelt's guy got back at him, and said, "I know, no, I don't follow. I don't make judgments on your your financial ticker tape." Um, so it's a it's a wonderful. Um, There's a wonderful amount of literature on their adversarial relationship with the two, and yet, in in many ways, a mutual respect in the end. Thank Thank you. you. Okay.
0: Thank you. Uh, You did quite extensive research on Roosevelt. Uh, It's Robert Zabler. Uh, uh, Would you say in your research? That uh, I mean, in in your opinion, if we did not elect Teddy Roosevelt, who will never build Panama Canal, or the Panama Canal will never be built. Period, unless you think that somebody else could do that job. I mean, we're doing nine, eighty years building one little subway line on on Second yeah. Avenue.
1: <laughs> well, well, the. Um of course, you know he comes in as I mentioned in 1901. We didn't elect him as president. Uh, he came in; it was our youngest president at 42 years of age, and was I don't know if it could have gotten built without either Theodore Roosevelt or somebody that was that bullheaded and persistent to have done it. But we always get worried as historians about what, um, what, what if I got to edit Ronald Reagan's diaries, called the Reagan diaries, and Nancy Reagan had given it to me to edit with one stipulation, never tell people what my husband would have done because people are very unpredictable, and you never know. History unfolds the way it unfolds, so one, one doesn't want to say it would never have gotten built the Panama Canal without uh, Theodore Roosevelt, but certainly he, he, for better or for worse, depending on how you think of it, there are many people in Latin America that felt it was a, a, a ugly sign of American imperialism and, and colonialism, uh, uh, and there are other people that sh- see it as a model of can-doism, like going to the moon. So it de- it depends on how you fall down on it. But I, but it's fair to call him the father of the Panama Canal because of the amount of um, manic energy and determination he put into that project. Good evening, Professor uh, Dan Harrison. Um, when he died in January 1919, Roosevelt was being talked about as a putative candidate for the Republican nomination in 1920 notwithstanding his frail health and notwithstanding historians' uh, antipathy towards what-if questions, what is the sense of the historical community on how things might have evolved in the post-war period had T.R. been nominated and elected in 1920 instead of the rather nondescript man who was elected? Very good question, and it's actually something I left out of my remarks. I'm glad you raised it. He, He... Looked like he w- he was the front-runner for the GOP in uh, if, in uh, 1920, and we think he would have gone for it, meaning he would have run and probably would have gotten elected uh, president of the United States. It's hard to imagine that, uh, and I don't, again, I'm at that what-f clause, but it's hard to imagine Harding could have taken on uh, um on Theodore Roosevelt, who was growing in stature. people He got a little tired, some of TR, from the scene, but after Wilson and after the war and all, many people were looking back with a little more rose-tinted glasses at TR, so he very well could have gotten elected, and there's all indications he would have wanted to go for it. So That would have made the 20s quite different because he would have had a progressive reformer Republican uh, claiming to be part of the party of Lincoln instead of the Harding... Coolidge, Hoover, kind of corporate um, Republican, uh, and we presumably would have been less isolationist. Yes, exactly. Thank you. They were excellent for remind my... Hi,
0: I'm Dawn Hewins Kelly, and I had a question about the security surrounding him since he followed an assassinated president, and I had seen him in a film clip at the Smithsonian. His, Museum of American History, jumping into the Wright Brothers plane without any provocation, just boom. <laughs> and I was wondering, did he drive people crazy with that?
1: Yes, there's, uh, <laughs> it's a good question and it gets back to the seminal point of what, um, when you have no fear um, and you don't have any skeletons in your closet, it makes you pretty powerful. <clears throat> TR never had to, if he did, if you, if you really, well trust me that you, we have no record of him lying or cheating he had nothing ever to cover. There never, he never had paranoia of that kind. And then he developed this sort of Darwinian philosophy. Or when the, And it's not so much different than Jonathan Edwards, and the door opens, you'll go tumbling down, right? I mean, it's, a, you know, it's, you know, death's upon any of us any minute. So live your life honorably and live it to the fullest. But his idea of fullest was trying anything new. And so um, he went into a submarine, and he went um, as you mentioned <laughs> in aviation and uh, and he went c- catching coyotes and wolves. He went wolf catching, riding his horse, leaping off a running, galloping horse, and grabbing the the wolf and If you put your fist in the wolf's mouth, it turns totally passive <laughs> and this guy he went with catch 'em alive jack abernathy b- made made business selling wolves in coyotes to ranchers and also to zoos in Paris and Berlin and the like. And TR went with them. Nobody believed that this happened. And so he went and got uh, a film crew to go film some of this. And so he liked the daring do, whether it's aviation or so. Now with that said, the big lover of our Navy got seasick all the time. (laughs) Okay. He really liked being on horseback and having flat land. he His ecosystem was really the prairie, the great savanna of America um, that he felt most um, most at home with. But yes, that kind of, uh, you know, he used to do a game where you walk from A to B with kids. No matter what, you walk straight. You have to climb a, a, a wall or go over to get from one point to another. He did all these strenuous life activities, uh, constantly taking risk. Um, and that was part of who he was.
0: Um, Helen Horowitz, the big lover of conservation. However, I have also read. I mean, I guess it was more stylish in those days than in than in our day. Was a huge slaughterer of of wild animals.
1: Among, I mean. Well, the um, it's a, it's another good question. I mentioned you his proclivity for hunting. Back in those days, what he noticed and why he created to save all the big game, it's, you could do this as a Jeopardy question. What president wrote a book while a sitting president as a trade book? First is Theodore Roosevelt, a book with Macmillan called The Deer Family, about the deer of North America. And he went to save the elk. And created Flat a uh, Wichita Game Reserve for the buffalo in Oklahoma, and another buffalo reserve in Montana at the Flathead Reservation. The point being, aristocratic hunters were in those days the original conservationist in many ways, because you saved the species to hunt the species. But secondarily, um, even if the American Museum of Natural History next door, you could go into the bird drawers and see all the carcasses. Before we had DNA or, be, or aerial photography or bird banding even, um, the way that scientists would study animals is by collecting specimens. So if you wanted to understand the eastern bluebird, you shoot 20 eastern bluebirds and study variations in coloration and beak size and stuff. So he did not see himself as an animal slaughter. He saw himself as a, as a wildlife biologist man of science. With that said... His kill ratio in Africa seems to me to have succe- well succeeded what he needed to have shot for his museums. And it leads people to think of him as having a bloodlust. Um, and, um, and, and so it, it's not as much of a, you know, look, I, when my book came out, somebody picked this up at the New York Review of Books, um, a book I did on TR. They said Brinkley, you know, Brinkley talks about him being both a lifetime Audubonner and a lifetime member of the National Rifle Association. (laughs) Today, we think of them as, you know, those two don't often meet, but in TR, they do.
0: Yes? Another what-if question, Uh, Seymour Cohen. You answered the question, he would have entered World War War I earlier, and we know what happened when America entered. Would the war have ended sooner? Would there have been less hostility to Germany, no Versailles Treaty, and what would have been the course of the world Mm -hmm. as far as fascism (laughs) rises? I mean, I'd love your opinion well, That on is that. the
1: ultimate what-if question. Uh, let me say this about that. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt was beloved in Europe almost as much as Benjamin Franklin had been generations before. His famous speech at the Sorbonne was the one that Nixon used when he resigned in Watergate, you know, that it's, the uh, damn the critics, it's better to be in the arena and sweat and dust and all of that, and... Um, and he spoke foreign languages very fluently, so he's very fluent in German and knew all about German community affairs and the German people. But he had a huge disdain for the Kaiser and um, for the the um, what he saw as a Germany run um, run amuck. Uh, but how he would have things would have panned out differently if we got in sooner, if T.R. was and all that I just just don't know. I better stop. I really enjoyed it tonight, guys, and I'll be around if you want to talk some more. Thank you.